Welcome, everyone. We are going to continue our series, What's the Difference, in just a bit. And we are going to begin on page 51, and then eventually we're going to get to page 56, where we left off last week. But if you need a notebook, John has some over here, and Larry has some over here. Quickly, just a couple of announcements. The reason Marcy was up here just a bit ago is ladies. If you're attending the Advent, which we encourage you to do on December the 11th, Thursday, December the 11th, uh, the food for that has a a sign-up, and she's going to circulate that sign-up sheet through this room uh, during this hour. So ladies, if you'll look at that and affix your name to it and indicate what you can bring if you're planning to come, that would be very helpful. And uh, if, uh, if you could do your best to make sure it circulates through each side, because what happens is people are so wrapped with attention in what I'm saying that they forget the sign-up sheets, and then they just languish after they've only gone to a few people. So try to keep the thing moving if, if you would, okay? And also, I want to announce that this afternoon at 5 o'clock, we have our baptism service, and all of you are invited to come. If you're not a member of our church, we still would welcome you to come and observe the, the baptism service, and also to stay for the celebration dinner afterwards. We always have a great time with those, and we do want to encourage the people who are being baptized. So even though you might, those being baptized may not be in your family or may not even be uh, someone you particularly know well, uh, we still want to encourage them in that as members of our body. So if you can uh, come... All of you, we encourage you to do that. Five o'clock tonight in, in this room. All right, we are going to pick up on page 51 in our series on what's the difference. This series is looking at the differences between biblical Christianity and various world religions. We spent several weeks at the beginning of the series looking at the tenets of Islam. But then a few weeks ago, we turned our attention to beginning to look at differences between denominations. And we've been looking at the Roman Catholic Church for the last uh, several weeks, and uh, we are closing in on the end of our look at that, and then we're going to do uh, a little bit of church history to show you where the Roman Catholic Church came from, and then how it was that uh, a number of uh, denominations spun spun off of that, and that requires that we go through a little bit of church history together. I hope it, I don't think it will be, you'll find it to be dry and dusty, hopefully it'll be uh, helpful and practical to you. But we left off uh, last week on page 56, but just to catch up for those who were not here, if you'll look at page 51 and the bottom of page 51, where we mentioned the sacraments of Roman Catholicism. And I say at the bottom there, Roman Catholicism has developed an elaborate system of works within which the faithful are to labor during their lifetime in order to earn salvation. The sacraments provide the rungs on the ladder to heaven, beginning in infancy and continuing until death. And with the works of the living faithful on behalf of the departed, while you're in purgatory, even after death. Below we survey what Roman Catholicism teaches regarding the more well-known and utilized sacraments of the church, baptism and Eucharist slash mass, and contrast it with the message of God's grace as taught in Scripture. Now, the reason we've selected baptism and Eucharist mass is because, as I mentioned last week, there are seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, but not all seven of those sacraments are participated in by every Roman Catholic. For example, one sacrament is marriage. Not everyone gets married. One sacrament is ordination, and that is for uh, placement into the priesthood, and obviously not everyone does that. But the most, and that's why I say the most utilized of the sacraments are these, baptism and Eucharist mass. 
And baptism initiates one into the church and into salvation, as we'll see in a moment. And then with Mass, that is the ongoing cleansing of sin, and, and not just, as I said in the first hour, if you were here, not just parental sin, but actually judicial sin. Uh, and uh, I will note that as we go. So I want you to see and remind you what baptism is in Roman Catholicism and what uh, the Mass and Eucharist are in, in Roman Catholicism. So page 52, here are some documents from Roman Catholicism. Look at num- number two there, the Code of Canon Law and Canon number 849. Baptism, the gateway to the sacraments, is necessary for salvation, either by actual reception or at least by desire. And that whole at least by desire is if you have someone who's not able to be baptized, uh, but they are willing to be baptized. So someone needs to be willing to be baptized even if they're not able to be baptized. And importantly, baptism is necessary for salvation. By it, people are freed from sins, are born again as children of God. Now notice that. By baptism, people are born again as children of God and made like Christ by an indelible character and are incorporated into the church. It is, a, it is validly conferred only by a washing in real water with the proper form of words. The proper form of words means uh, a formula is pronounced, but that has to be pronounced by an official of the church, namely, uh, namely an ordained priest. So that's the initiation into salvation. It is when one becomes born again according to Roman Catholicism. And then if you'll look at page 53... Page 53, and that first paragraph that asks the question, what sins does baptism take away? Baptism remits the guilt of all sins. That is, it takes away all sins, whether original sin or inherited sin from Adam at conception, or actual sin is incurred by each person on reaching the age of reason. No matter how frequent or how grave the actual sins may be, their guilt is all removed at baptism. All of this is the pure gift of God, since St. Paul writes, it is for no reason except his own compassion that he saved us by means of the cleansing water of rebirth. And when they read cleansing water of rebirth, they mean baptism, even though the verse doesn't, doesn't say baptism. So when it says all of these sins are removed, this is important to note. It's all of the sins that have com- been committed prior to baptism. It's not future sins. Because this is not justification. This is not a declaration by God that you are no longer guilty before the bar of my justice because of the work of Christ. Rather, this is the taking away of sins up to that point. So the guilt of Adamic sin in the past, and then any actual sins that you have committed in the past, these are all taken away at baptism. However, the future is yet to be seen. And what happens in the future and how is that taken care of, we'll see in a moment. The next paragraph, what penalties does baptism remove? It removes all the penalties, eternal and temporal, attached to original and actual sin. But again, these are all past sins, not future sins covered by the blood, covered by the blood of Christ. Now, how does that happen? How, do, how are future sins taken care of? That's where Eucharist or the Mass comes, comes in. This is the way that ongoing sin is taken care of in the life of a of a faithful Catholic. And let me just stop here and remind you that in Roman Catholicism, when Mass is celebrated, when the, the bread and the cup are distributed, they are literally the body and blood of Christ. 
And they have become the body and blood of Christ, Christ by means of a term that we're going to see in a minute from Roman Catholic doc- documents called transubstantiation. So we mentioned that a few weeks ago, but substantiation, substance, trans means change. Transubstantiation means that the substance of the bread and the substance of the, the wine change. And they are substantially, in their very substance, they are now the body and blood of Christ. And uh, with then that transubstantiation, notice on page 54 what Roman Catholic documents say. Second paragraph on page 54 on transubstantiation. The Council of Trent, which is what what I'm quoting here, official Roman Catholic council in the 16th century, says this, And because that Christ our Redeemer declared that which he offered under the species of bread to be truly his own body, therefore has it ever been a firm belief in the church of God, and this holy synod doth now declare it anew, that by the consecration of the bread and of the wine, a conversion is made of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood, which conversion is by the, the Holy Catholic Church suitably and properly called transubstantiation. Now, you think about that. In that moment when the priest holds up the host... And he prays and consecrates the host. There is this conversion into the body of Christ. And when the priest holds up the chalice and he prays the prayer of consecration, there is now this change into the blood of Christ, according to Roman Catholicism. If this is literally the body and blood of Christ, then those elements could be worshipped, couldn't they? This is the body and blood of Christ. And in fact... Roman Catholicism teaches that not only could they be worshipped, they should be worshipped. Notice the next paragraph, middle of page 54, chapter 5, on the cult and veneration to be shown to this most holy sacrament. Wherefore, there is no room left for doubt that all the faithful of Christ may, according to the custom ever received in the Catholic Church, render in veneration the worship of Latria, which is due to the true God to this most holy sacrament. For not therefore it is, is it the less to be adored on this account that it was instituted by Christ the Lord in order to be received. For we believe the same God to be present therein of whom the eternal Father when introducing in him into the world says, let all the angels of God worship him whom the Magi falling down adored who as the scripture testifies was adored by the apostles in Galilee. So if Jesus was adored in that way when he was on earth, then when this becomes Jesus then it is to be adored as if it is Jesus because, in fact, in Roman Catholicism, they're one and the same. Now, this leads to all kinds of rituals, all kinds of things. In European uh, countries, cities of European countries, to this very day, there are festivals that take place in the streets of those cities in which the priests will march in full regalia, but they will, they will have before them a, a little house that looks like a like a dollhouse, really, about that size, a very ornate dollhouse. It's called the tabernacle. And many of you may not know this, but uh, each Roman Catholic church has behind the altar, has one of these. And it's called the tabernacle, and it is the place where 
the consecrated hosts and consecrated wine are kept. I mean, think about how you have to guard this now. And all the practical difficulties that go with distributing the literal body and blood of Christ. I mean, back in the day when, now it's done differently, people will come to the front and they will receive the host. But back in the day when it was actually distributed like we did today, think about if somebody drops the host. You're dropping literally the body of, of Christ. So there would be people, I'm not making this up, with poles to try to kind of catch that. And the tabernacle is the place behind the altar where these consecrated hosts and wine are, are stored. Now, in these cities in Europe then, the tabernacle will be, will be paraded through the streets of the city and people will bow down and worship as the tabernacle goes by because contained therein is the body and blood of Christ. So it is serious, serious stuff indeed. Again, on page 54 then, here's what the Council of Trent says regarding how important it is that one believe all that has just been said. If anyone saith, canon 1, or excuse me, if anyone denieth that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ, but saith that he is only therein as in a sign or in a figure or virtue, let him be anathema. Now, that's saying that if you say, like we said in the first hour, if you all were here the first hour, we observe the Lord's table and we observe the bread. And in saying this, I said these are memorials that remind us of the sacrifice of Christ's body and, the sh and the, His shed blood. If you say it's only a sign, a symbol, a figure, let Him be accursed, let Him be damned. Next canon. If anyone saith that... In the sacred and holy sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of the bread and wine remains conjointly with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and denieth that wonderful and singular conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood, the species only of the bread and wine remaining, which conversion indeed the Catholic Church most aptly calls transubstantiation, let him be anathema. Now this con conjointly idea. This was done in the 16th century, middle 16th century, Council of Trent, 1546 to 1563. 17 years, met on and off during those 17 years. And if you are remembering your church history just a little bit, we started this section of this series looking at the year 1517. 1517, that was a pivotal year because that was the year that Martin Luther broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, 1517. So here you are a few decades later, and the Catholic Church is pronouncing anathema on anyone who says that the bread and the wine remains conjointly. This is because Luther uh, had a theory, not transubstantiation, but he called it consubstantiation, which means the, the body and, and, and blood of Christ are with, that's what consubstantiation means, are with the substance of the, the bread and the uh, and the, and the wine. Now, what does that mean? I have studied as best I can Lutheranism, and I don't know. I just, what does consubstantiation mean? Now, I will talk about why our Lutheran friends did what they did with a lot of the stuff that they did, because we're going to look at denominations. But I'm just telling you now that that's partly what's being condemned here, because Luther had already done that a few decades later, and now the Council of Trent is responding to that. Bottom of page 54. 
If anyone saith that in the holy sacrament of the Eucharist, Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is not to be adored with the worship, even external of Latria, and is consequently neither to be venerated with a special festive solemnity, nor to be solemnly borne about in procession. Remember what I talked about, paraded? If anybody says that's not to happen according to the laudable and universal right and custom of the Holy Church, or is not to be proposed publicly to the people to be adored, and that the adorers there are, Thereof are idolaters, let him be anathema. All right. And then we saw at the bottom of page 55, what is happening then when this change takes place, transubstantiation with the body and blood of Christ. Now it is really Jesus that we're partaking of. Then what does that mean practically? And the bottom of page 55, the Council of Trent tells you, that the sacrifice of the Mass is propitiatory, both for the living and the dead. Propitiation. Do you guys remember that? I said that this morning in the first hour. I talked about Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, speaking of Christ's death being a propitiation for our sins, His blood satisfying the righteous anger of God toward our, our sin. This is saying that the Mass is propitiatory. And it says it this way, For inasmuch as in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, is contained and immolated in an unbloody manner, the same Christ who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross, the Holy Council teaches that this is truly propitiatory, and that if we, contrite and penitent, with sincere heart and upright faith, with fear and reverence, draw nigh to God, we obtain mercy and find grace in seasonable aid. For appeased by this sacrifice, the Lord grants the grace and gift of penitence and pardons even the gravest crimes and sins. For the victim is one and the same, the same now offering by the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross, the manner alone of offering being different. The fruits of that bloody sacrifice, it is well understood, are received most abundantly through this unbloody one. So far is the latter from derogating in any way from the former. Wherefore, according to the tradition of the apostles, it is rightly offered not only for the sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities of the faithful who are living, but also for those who are departed in Christ, but not as yet fully purified. So Christ is being re-crucified in the Mass. And that re-crucifixion is what then takes care of future sins that baptism did not take care of. And all of those sins need to be taken care of by participation in Mass. And if someone is on their deathbed and they missed Mass, they didn't have opportunity to go to Mass, does anybody know what one of the other seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church is that tries to help a person in that situation? It's called last rites. And this is why priests then are rushed to the deathbed of a Roman Catholic, to administer last rites. So there's a beginning with baptism, there's the ongoing re-sacrifice of Christ in the Mass, and then there, is, then there is the last rites. Now, with all of that, with Christ being re-crucified, every week, multiple times a week, thousands and tens of thousands of times worldwide, all the time, if it could be shown in Scripture that Christ was sacrificed once, and that sacrifice, one-time sacrifice, took care of all of your sins, past, present, and future, then that would contradict all of the stuff we just read. 
And in our remaining time, I propose to show that. And on page 56, bottom of page 56, the scriptures on the atonement of Christ on the cross and our works. So what saith the scriptures? And the first thing the scriptures say is that Christ's death was once for all. And that phrase, once for all, is in quotes. So do we have more? Do we have more notebooks now? We have one more notebook? We're going to auction off this one notebook that we have. So who needs a... Do you know where it's going, John? No? Anybody need a notebook? Did you guys get a notebook? You got one? Okay. We need one over here. All right. Rich is giving up his notebook. He's sick of this class. (laughs) Thanks, Rich. Thanks, John. All right. So Christ's death was once for all, and that phrase, once for all, notice it's in quotes. The reason it's in quotes is because it's quoting Scripture, that Christ's death was once for all. Now look at uh, John 19. Jesus hangs upon the cross, and Jesus says in his last words, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. And in Roman Catholicism, forgive the grammar, it ain't finished. It keeps going. He keeps, he keeps being sacrificed. It's not done. But that once for all phrase is used in Scripture in Hebrews chapter 9, bottom of page 56. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. Okay, everybody get that? He doesn't offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Do you all see? This is a different kind of priest. The priests up to the time of Jesus, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, there were a priesthood to which people were anointed and ordained. But those priests had to offer sacrifices again and again. Because the blood, says the writer of Hebrews, of bulls and of goats could never take away sin. But this high priest, because of who he is and because unlike those priests, he did not have sin of his own, but rather the sacrifice was not the sacrifice of something else, but the sacrifice of his very self and a perfect self, a righteous self, a sinless self that is now given up in sacrifice for the sins of his people. Then all sins, one time, can be atoned for past, present, and future, once for all. Christ did this. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, on page 57, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And again, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So, 
when we were building this building, or adding on to this building, uh, I would sometimes have some of the construction folks say to me, uh, so where is the altar going to be? And, you know, you want to, I mean, the poor guy, he doesn't know that technically he's using language uh, that people use all the time and use incorrectly. We talk about weddings, and if somebody got stood up in their wedding, we say they got left at the what? But see, nobody will ever get left at the altar in our church because we ain't got one. But there's a reason we don't have an altar because the altar, the only altar of Christianity is the cross. And so I stand not on an altar, I stand on a platform. The only reason I'm standing on a platform is just so you can see. And the only reason it's like the 14 inches high it is is because that's high enough for you to be able to see. That's it. That's the only reason we have it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it at all. There's nothing special about this because I'm not a priest and I don't offer sacrifice. And the reason I don't offer sacrifice and the reason I'm not a priest is because the sacrifice of Jesus has been offered one time and it's done. It's finished. Now, that's what the Bible teaches is the good news. And that one sacrifice, once for all, not over and over and over again, covers our sins, past, present, future. Well, then that in turn now brings up this whole issue of, well, then what's left for me to do? <laughs> if it is finished and he has done it once for all, then what do I have left to do? What work am I supposed to do? And here's the answer. You're supposed to give your body in sacrifice to Him out of gratitude for what He has done, but in no way are you working for relationship with God. The whole reason that He offered Himself is because you can't do it. And the idea that we can do it or somehow in any way contribute to our salvation. I choose my words carefully here, but to say that, we can contribute to that in any way is blasphemy against the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we could contribute in any way, then God did not need to bring, come himself to earth and die on the cross. The reason God had to go to such extraordinary lengths is because we have total inability to contribute to our own salvation. So, page 57... Works righteousness is contrary to the good news of the gospel. So let us look at some passages here, Romans 3, 28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. A man is justified. That word justified is a courtroom term. It's a legal term. It's, it's, it's a term out of the, 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 court, the courtroom, the legal system. And it means to be declared righteous, to be declared not guilty. So we maintain that a man is declared not guilty. Declared by who? By God, the judge. Declared to be not guilty. Some of you have learned the term justification when you were in Sunday school as just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. How is it that? Because God, the judge, declares not guilty before the bar of his justice. We maintain, says Paul, that a man is declared not guilty before the bar of God's justice by faith. Faith in your New Testament means believe. By believing. 
by believing in who Jesus is and what he did, and notice it's apart from observing the law. He goes on in the next chapter, Romans chapter 4. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but rather an obligation. So here's what Paul is saying, rightly, of course, that if you work for something, then you are owed the wages of that work. So Paul is saying here uh, that if you work, you're owed something. In the two verses just prior to that, that Bob Allen read for us in our, our first hour, he said, what did our father Abraham find in regard to this? And then it says, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Do you know why it says that? Because God is saying, ain't nobody going to stand and say, you owe me. Nobody's going to say, this is what I did, pay up. And then that's why he says, but if a man works, if it's really by works, then in fact you're owed. And God's not going to let anybody say, I, God, am a debtor to you because you did X, I owe you this. But if you work, if in fact it's by works, God would owe you. But to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies, that is, declares not guilty. Notice who he does this for, justifies the wicked. <laughs> so you might say, well, one day when we get to heaven, God will say not guilty, justified. When you die, God might say that. But notice, it, he justifies the wicked. And when I get to heaven, I'll no longer be wicked. Thanks be to God. So he does this here and now. He justifies people who are sinful now, and he declares them not guilty just as if they had never sinned. So to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. His belief in the one who is righteous then becomes his own righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes the Psalms. Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now notice this last blessed line. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Only in the biblical gospel, only in the gospel of God's grace, does such a man exist? The man to whom the Lord will never count his sin against him, only in the gospel of God's grace. In every other scheme, in every other system, you may have an initiation point where you come and you do whatever is necessary, baptize, baptism, whatever it is, and you have a starting point and the stuff in the past is taken care of, but now the future is up to you. But here God says, there is this blessed person whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Titus chapter 3. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, 
whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been, notice the word again, justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now this washing of rebirth, remember that was quoted by the Council of Trent? This is the verse they were quoting. To say that this is baptism. But the context here is that we are saved, we're delivered, we're rescued, not because of righteous things we had done. Now let me just ask you all something. Is baptism a work? So now, now notice how you would have to read this. He didn't save us because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the work of being baptized. That's how you would have to interpret that. Which is, of course, completely impossible. This washing of rebirth is not referring to baptism. It doesn't mention baptism. But rather, in your Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is referred to as washing those that He imparts life to. And that's what Paul is alluding to here. And then Galatians chapter 3. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Now, let me stop there. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Here's why. Because cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. <laughs> Listen, uh, good luck with that. That's what God's saying. If you want to be justified before me by observing the law, I'll, I'm going to tell you how that's going to turn out. Cursed is everyone who attempts to be justified by the law who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And guess how many people have done everything written in the book of the law? That would be zero, nada, none, except Jesus. So cursed is everyone who tries to do that. Clearly then, Paul says, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. That's a quote from the first part of your Bible. That's why it's in quotation marks. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So he took the curse of our penalty, the fact that we have not done what God has instructed us to do, every last one of us. And he took that penalty and that curse by hanging on the cross and having our sin nailed to him on the cross. In Galatians, Paul goes on to say this. Stay with me for these last few minutes. Notice this. If a law had been given that could impart life, righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Now, do you guys see that I have highlighted there in bold and in italics, a law and the law? Here's why. Paul, who wrote that, is saying this. If a law, that is, if any law, if any list of works, if any list of rules, if there was anything anybody concoct, could concoct and come up with, if there was one anywhere, anyhow, if a law could have been given that could impart life, then certainly it would have come by the law that God gave. In other words, He gave the best list you're going to be able to come up with. The law cannot be improved upon. It's God's law. So you can't say, as many churches do, you can't say, well, yeah, we're no longer under the law because it had stuff that we don't do today. Offer sheep and go to the temple and all that. We're not under that, but we're under this. 
And then they've got some other list of rules, some other rungs on the ladder, some other list of sacraments or whatever it is. And what Paul is saying here is if that law couldn't get it done, what makes you think your law can get it done? If there was anyone that could get it done, that one would have done it. But it couldn't. Therefore, changing the rules and saying follow them ain't going to help either. And if you say that, next verse. If you say that there is a list, whatever list, from whoever, devised by whomever, is what you need to follow. He says this, Galatians 2.21, If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That's why it is not too much for me to say what I had said earlier. It is blasphemy against the cross of Christ to say that there is something that I contribute to my salvation. If there was anything you could contribute, Christ didn't have to die. And that's what you're then saying when you say you got to do X, Y, and Z in order to have a relationship with God. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is your sin. That's it. The only thing you contribute is your sin. And everything else is laid on Jesus. And that's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, these blessed verses that many of you know because you've heard me say several times throughout the years, these are the two verses that I was reading at age 19 in my bedroom Having grown up in church, having grown up in Sunday school, having learned the gospel, sort of, because it was a gospel that said, in effect, now I was, we, were, we were not Roman Catholic, but the church I grew up in said that when you come to salvation, all of your past sins are forgiven, but not all of your future sins. You're not assured of eternal life. The church I grew up in did not believe in something called eternal security. Your past sins are now forgiven. And now we'll see how well you live for Jesus to see if you actually make it to heaven. You can lose this salvation, I was told. Exactly what you had to do to lose it was quite unclear. But as a teenager, I knew if anything could be done to lose it, I've done it. And as a teenager with a sensitive conscience, I was troubled by that, unable to sleep many nights because I was concerned about my soul. And so I was up in my bedroom reading God's Word. And I read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You guys remember the boasting thing with Abraham? You know, if Abraham obtained his justification by works, then he has whereof to boast, but not before God. Because God ain't going to let anybody boast. God's not going to let anybody come and say, you owe me. And so God says, so that no one can boast, I don't let anybody contribute to the work of this. I do all the work, and you believe the work that I have done. And therefore, it is by grace, through believing, through faith. And so God, in His mercy, reached down to this 19-year-old in his bedroom. And He turned the light on. The Holy Spirit of God 
moved on my heart and mind in that blessed moment. So that everything that I had read in Scripture for the 18 years prior now opened up to me. And I realized that this is not my keeping it and not my maintaining it, not my working for it, but a free gift from a gracious God that comes only by the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believed in my bedroom that day. And I have been rescued. I have been saved. And I will be in heaven with God forever. Come what may. I have sinned many times between age 19 and whatever it is I am now. (laughs) And as God gives me more years, I will sin this week and this month, and I will sin more. But my sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus. And I am one of those guys that Romans 4, 8 speaks of. Blessed is the man who sinned. The Lord will never count against him. So that's the good news. Now, what do you do with that good news? Let me give you a few things and we'll be done. If you have embraced that, as I did at age 19, then every moment of every day, every day you rise and you thank God, Lord God, thank you for your grace in my life. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the covering of my sin that only he can give. Thank you for the once-for-all sacrifice on the cross that covers my sin past and present and future. And in gratitude to you, I thank you by giving my body, myself, my whole self as a living sacrifice to you. In view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, Romans 12 and verse 1. In view of all this marvelous stuff, do that. So if you've done that, you do that every day. And with every breath that God gives you, you praise Him and you live for His glory. Not to gain heaven, but in gratitude because you've been given heaven. And then if you, as you have opportunity, you look for open doors to share this message. Everybody, see, we get to the end and we just have to give you a cattle prod every now and then, all right? I heard Oral Roberts. Yes, I've heard Oral Roberts. And uh, I heard him. He was preaching, and uh, something went haywire like that. And he said, there are demons in those wires. He meant it. They're not demons in the wires. There's just a couple demons in the sound booth who prod us every now and then. You look for opportunities. If you believe everything we've talked about and you've embraced that, you look for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with other people. I mean, friends, is that good news or what? And see, that's news that nobody else has. That's news nobody else has. There is no other religion other than biblical Christianity. There is no other denomination, any particular denomination, other than those who embrace biblical Christianity and the gospel of God's grace. That is an exclusive message centered completely on Jesus and in His grace. And if you've embraced that, then you share that. And if you're in this room and you have come as we had hoped you would come, out of curiosity to learn what is the difference, I have shown you as clearly as I can what the difference is between biblical Christianity and every rival. 
It's a matter of a ladder and which way it goes. Every rival to Christianity has a ladder that you climb to God. And biblical Christianity alone has God coming down that ladder to you. And he does the work that you could not do. I've tried to show that to you. And now your responsibility, and I say this on the authority of Almighty God in his word, he commands everyone everywhere now to repent and to receive the gift that he offers to you. He has died for your sin. And for you to walk away from that is to walk away from the only hope you have for a relationship with God, the only hope. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6 that those who have tasted the heavenly gift and have once been enlightened, if they turn away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. There is one opportunity for a relationship with God, and it is through this Jesus Christ who came to put an end to the law because he took the curse of the law on himself, and he lived the life you should have lived, and he died the death that you and I deserved. And now he offers the benefit of that to you. And for you to turn away is to say, no thanks, God, I'll do it on my own. And God will judge most severely, most severely, anyone who tramples the blood of his son. And that's the language the Bible uses, trampling the blood of his son. So God is offering himself to you right now in this sacred moment. We're going to pray in just a moment. You need to do what I did at age 19. You need to bow your head and your heart and your life to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And admit that there is nothing you can do. That you are a sinner and you're apart from God. And that only the life and death of Jesus bridges the infinite gap between you and the God who made you. And the cross of Jesus will be applied to you as it was to me. And you'll be saved. You'll be delivered. You'll be rescued. And you will have eternal life with God as a guarantee. Not a wish, a guarantee. Because he's done the work. All sins forgiven, past, present, and future. Friend, if you would like to embrace that gift, then you can do that when we bow in just a moment. Some of us are going to be thanking God for having saved us. Some of us are going to be confessing to God that we have not lived in gratitude in light of that. Some of us are going to be asking God to give us opportunities to share this blessed good news. But what you need to do, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you need to desperately do that right now. I'm a sinner. Jesus, you've died for my sin. I ask you to save me, to rescue me. If you walk away, and then I'm done. If you walk away, and most of you know I'm not much of an evangelist. I don't try to scare people unnecessarily. I just try to tell you the truth. Friends, we have no guarantee we'll ever see each other again. This time next week, one or both of us may be in eternity. And the question is, where will you spend that eternity? You have an opportunity to know that without a doubt right now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you profoundly for the plan of salvation that you have wrought in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ.
that God the Son submitted to the will of God the Father, and at just the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those under the law, that we might have the full rights of sons. And now we cry out to you, Abba, Father. Well, Father, thank you for the work of God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who turns the light on in our minds and in our hearts so that we see the significance of our need and that the gospel alone fills that need. You cause a conviction, a burning within us so that we embrace that message and the Savior who is central to that message. Thank you, Lord God, for doing that for me at age 19. Thank you for the difference that it has made in me and the way I view all of life. Knowing that every moment of every day, if I were to die, that I will spend eternity with you. That I'm able to live my life now out of gratitude to you for the grand purpose of bringing glory to you. Not boasting myself, not glory and praise for myself, but glory to the one who made me and the one who has redeemed me in Jesus. And now every day has significance. It has purpose. For me to bring glory to you and for me to see others be transformed from lips and lives that are lived for themselves to lips and lives that are now lived for the praise of their God. So, Lord God, I profoundly thank you. And I thank you for the brothers and sisters here who, through various circumstances, have heard that same gospel and your spirit has moved upon them and drawn them out of the world and to yourself. Thank you for the difference that Jesus has made and is making. And Lord, I pray for our dear friends here who came here to learn what the difference is. Lord, you know that they now know the difference. If you know that they now know the truth about who Jesus is and who we are and what we most desperately need. And Lord, I ask you, your Holy Spirit, to move upon the hearts of some in this room now, to draw them as you've drawn me, and to cause them to see what I have seen, not because of anything about them or about me or about us, but because in your mercy you have reached down and rescued us. Oh, Lord, right now in this sacred moment, we ask you to save some. We ask you that there may be some who will leave this room, but you will save them this afternoon or tomorrow. But Lord, we ask you to grant them mercy, grant them another day. But Lord, we are not given the promise of tomorrow. So help them to see how vitally important this is. And we will give you the praise and the honor for all that you accomplish in those of us you have already saved and in those you are saving now. We pray all of this of the authority and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.